This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Happy birthday, dear Buddhas. May you all always be born like this in this world system expressing yourself here and now for the benefit of all beings. Thank you, Buddhas, for your birth. Some of us have been sitting here on the Zoom screen for the past six days. Practicing Sazen. And studying Dogen Zenji's essay, the Samadhi that is the king of Samadhis. Samadhi is a Sanskrit term that sometimes means it's translated as the one-pointedness of mind, usually meaning when the mind and its object of attention, which usually seem to be separate, when they become one-pointed, when they become one point, that is samadhi, and that's often the description of samadhi when we're focusing uh, narrowly on a very particular object like the breath in the abdomen or at the nose tip, particular point and the mind is attending to that point and the mind and the sensation of the breath become one point to develop concentration, concentration is like one pointed focus. So that's one way of interpreting samadhi, one pointedness of mind, but it can also be understood as unification of mind. The Buddha 
defines samadhi as ekagrata in Sanskrit, which literally means one-pointedness or unification. It could be translated either way. Unification of mind has more of a sense of broader unity, not necessarily one point of mind and object, but more a unified field of presence. So this, this one-pointedness, this ekagrata, which is the definition of samadhi, is uh, understood in either of these ways, one-pointedness or unification. And uh, samadhi is an important teaching for, for the Buddha throughout his lifetime of teaching. We develop this one-pointedness or unification of mind to create a stable foundation to then discern the reality of all things. Samadhi is usually taught in the early suttas as a kind of platform, as a kind of basis, stabilized mind that can thoroughly investigate the nature of itself and all things. When Dogen Zenji is talking about samadhi in this essay we've been studying this week called The King of Samadhi's Samadhi, it seems that he feels that um, we don't want to separate the, this basis or platform of samadhi from this verification of the reality of all things. It's not just a platform or basis for this further practice of investigating reality. They are inseparable. And Dogen discovers a name of a samadhi that was taught by Shakyamuni Buddha called the Samadhi Raja Samadhi sovereign of all samadhis, samadhi, taught in the Prajna Paramita Sutras. And an, an ancient commentary uh, on this samadhi, Raja Samadhi, that I think is an influence for Dogen's understanding. This ancient commentary says, it's called the king of samadhis, samadhi, because all other samadhis of various kinds are included within it. Here we could understand this king of samadhis, samadhi as, as this, as a unification of mind, but a really 
boundless, all-inclusive unification of mind. It's so uh, vast and all-inclusive, the king of samadhis, samadhi, that other samadhis, other one-pointednesses can be practiced within it. We could even say that the king of samadhis, samadhi, is um, so vast and all-inclusive that um, it's, it's pervading all our experience right now. It's so timeless and beginningless and endless, so boundless and unlocated that uh, every possible experience for every being from beginningless time up to now and into the future are all happening within the king of samadhi's samadhi, whether or not we know it. According to this teaching, if we wonder where we are right now, ultimately where we are right now, this teaching says we are within the king of samadhi's samadhi. Shakyamuni Buddha was just born into the king of samadhi's samadhi. And we are abiding here within the king of samadhis, samadhi. Whether we like it or not. There's no escape from this samadhi. But within the samadhi, within this unified realm of all-inclusive, timeless presence, we can try to distract ourselves from it and get caught up in all kinds of meaningless activities, if we like. Samadhi, that is the king of samadhis, allows us to do so. It's so gracious and accepting of all our foibles and distractions. So we can um, do pretty much whatever. But since it's so allowing, this king of samadhi, samadhi is so allowing everything that we do, it also allows us to um, cultivate a unified mind in this particular expression of body and mind we call a person. It allows this 
expression called a person to practice unifying the mind, concentrating the mind within itself. Right? Because as the old commentary says, it's called the kingdom of samadhi is samadhi because all other samadhis of various kinds are included within it. So we're welcome to practice various kinds of samadhi within the samadhi that we can't escape if we'd like to. The old teaching says, it's like all the rivers and streams of the world flowing into the great ocean. So any practices we might do are like these streams that flow into the, into the ocean called the king of samadhis, samadhi. The old commentary says it's the foremost samadhi because it is freely able to take innumerable other samadhis as its object or as its focus. So why, if we're already in the king of samadhi, samadhi, why would we bother trying to practice some other samadhi within it? That might seem redundant or um, extra. One reason we might um, want to practice it, some kind of intentional unification of mind of this person within the boundless king of samadhi, samadhi, is so that through this intentional unification of mind, uh, we might then be able to verify the presence of the king of samadhi's samadhi that we're already in. Even if we're already within it, we may not notice that we're in it. We may not appreciate that we're in it. So through practicing some more conventional type of, of gathering the mind in present calm stability, then from within that, that we could call sub-samadhi, within the sub-samadhi, we might be able to verify the boundless king of samadhi, samadhi, that we're already in, but not verifying. That could be a valid reason to practice collecting the mind, gathering the mind, letting go of distraction, becoming present as this particular person. through which the verification of the king of samadhi, samadhi, could dawn. The 
it's not a, it's not a required entrance fee for the king of samadhi samadhi because we've already entered or it's not really even that we've entered we're already within beginninglessly within but uh in order to verify the reality and presence of the king of samadhi samadhi it may be and a kind of an entrance fee to practice, intentionally practice, um, becoming present and developing a more conventional understanding of um, unifying this particular human mind. And if we so wished to practice a samadhi within the king of samadhis, samadhi, being present, calm and awake. There are various practices, practical practices that are taught by the Buddhas and ancestors to develop a unified mind as an individual person. And these practices usually involve like um, attending to an object of observation in the present meditation object. Usually it's recommended to develop samadhi that we choose a pretty much non-conceptual object like the sensation of breathing in the abdomen. It's an object meaning like we can attend to this sensation. The mind can attend to this non-conceptual physical sensation of movement in the abdomen. And by attending to this non-conceptual object, the mind tends to settle calm and collect itself into presence. That's one possibility for a non-conceptual meditation object is the sensation of breathing in a particular location in this very body. Another non-conceptual object the mind might attend to, to develop samadhi within the inconceivable king of samadhi's samadhi, is to attend to mind itself, which is also a non-conceptual object. By mind here, we don't mean like all our thoughts and, and so on, but just basic, presence itself, basic awareness. So the mind, instead of attending to a sensation of breath can attend to itself. The mind can attend to itself, which is then strictly speaking, not exactly a meditation object because the mind is not really an object 
it's more like a subject. It's more like the subject is attending to the subject. But it's not really a subject separate from the object, because it's just one mind um, attending to itself or being itself. Awareness can be aware of being aware. It's a a, um, very nice non-conceptual focal point. Not quite right to say that. Mind's not a focal point. Being aware of being aware is is a very nice practice of unifying the mind. But it can choose various non-conceptual objects to develop um, samadhi, unification of mind. And then uh, while doing this, we've all done this. Some we've all been practicing this because we're Zen practitioners. Of course, we're familiar with this, whether we call it developing samadhi or not. There's the practice of unifying the mind, being present. And uh, it's not always so easy. It's not like immediately we attend to the breath or we attend to mind itself and mind is calm and stable. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to work that way, right? Various phenomena, various experiences uh, arise that seem to derail our noble intention to develop samadhi. And one classic uh, list of these derailing experiences that the Buddha taught is called the five hindrances. Nivarana could also be translated as the five coverings or the five obscurations. What are they hindering? What are they covering? What are they obscuring? Samadhi. So if we're trying to develop samadhi in various hindrances or obscurations are arising and experience that seem to be blocking it, this is the area to work with. These are the, these are the experiences to, uh, to look at, to attend to, rather than just um, ignore because they still keep coming. So we can actually notice them, which helps us to have a list of them to, in order to notice and then uh, even apply antidotes and work with them. But I think it's helpful to have this list uh, of these five hindrances, five obscurations, so that when they arise during our intention to develop samadhi, that we can notice them and work with them. 
So this is very practical instructions for developing unified mind within the already present, boundless and timeless king of samadhis, samadhi. So here's, here's the list. The first one, the first, this is the first hindrance to samadhi, the first obscuration of unified mind. The first obscuration to unified mind is called craving. Wanting, wanting experience, wanting the present experience to be different than it is, basically what it means. And the Buddha often taught this is particularly the five senses. Um, have cravings or there are cravings for the, each of the five senses to be different than they are sometimes. And this is what we can notice this. These are also, I think these five are taught in order of like the most gross and obvious and blatant and kind of really derailing experiences up to the most subtle. So this one's pretty obvious usually. Um, we're sitting zazen, attending to the breath or attending to even mind itself. And uh, things are going okay. And along comes a wish for some experience to be different than it is. Like, um, I think mainly what happens in Zazen is we're not wishing for a different view, a different visual view. These are the five senses, right? Usually we're like facing a wall. And um, I don't know, I don't think this happens so much for me that I'm looking at the wall and kind of wishing that it was painted a different color or that the wallpaper was a different style. You might actually could happen, but usually that's the visual field. We're not so craving for a different wall to look at. But we could check to see. Um, the next one, one sense is sound or hearing. That one may be kind of common in Zazen, where um, it's a very quiet room, but we're sitting with other people. And um, the person sitting next to us is breathing very loudly. I bet everybody who's sat Zazen for a while has had this experience. Usually we can stand it for like a period of Zazen. You know, we're sitting next to somebody else the next period, but like in a sashin or something where um, you're sitting all day for days next to somebody and they're like, they have a stuffed up nose, so they're going to breathe loudly the whole time. The nivarana of um, craving for a different sound could easily arise. And then that hinders, it obscures unified mind, doesn't it? Or anything else, like a jackhammer tearing up the road right outside the zendo. 
sometimes in Santa Cruz and Zen Center sessions, you get a lot of road noise. A few times we had sessions where um, there is an annual mariachi festival at the Santa Cruz Mission next door to the Zen Center. So we happened to schedule at the time of the mariachi festival. So all day in Sashin, listening to mariachi music. Um, it was basically torture. <laughs> From then on, we would always contact the Santa Cruz mission before scheduling our sashins. I think music's very hard, much harder than Jackhammer, I would say, because it's so catchy. Our ears are just drawn to it. It's, it's interesting, even more than mariachi music, is human conversations outside the zendo. That's like, if we're really trying to unify the mind, this conceptual content of like what they're talking about. If they're talking another language, it would be okay. But in English, man, the craving can be in for a, a better sensory experience of hearing. And um, so we can, we can catch that. And uh, if we catch it, um, we can work with it. The Buddha in one of the early sutra talks about metaphors for these five different hindrances and uh, all having to do with water. So the, wa the water of samadhi is like clear, still, perfectly pure lake where you can see right through to the bottom. You can discern the reality of all things when the water is very still and very clear. And these five hindrances are different ways of distorting the water. So it becomes hard to see right through the bottom. And the first analogy the Buddha gives for this craving of some different sensory experience is uh, like dye, the color dye, like filling the water. It's so... Um, obscured by this colored dye that uh, it's hard to unify the mind and see through. And uh, what is the antidote? What is the way of working with this particular hindrance to samadhi? It is often said to be really just um, releasing it, letting, letting go of not letting go of the sound, right? but letting go of the craving for a different sound, especially when we can't do anything. If we, um, you know, if we could move to a quieter place, uh, then we could um, just do that, but often we can't. We have an assigned seat next to a loud breather. So, um, If we can't do anything about their breathing, then to really just let go of the wish for it to change, deeply accept the sensory experience that's happening. Not so easy sometimes, but that's, if but possible, we could have the sound come in and we're completely like, okay, I give up wishing for it to be different because the wishing is really what's obscuring the, um, 
the unification of mind with the samadhi. Uh, really, it's okay. And uh, I'm going to incorporate the obnoxious sound into my cultivation of samadhi. I'm just going to like, instead of trying to get rid of it, I'm going to let it in and um, let it be part of my presence. Welcome, welcome it in. Uh, don't wish for a quiet one. So this is the first, like die in the water and really letting go of the wish for it to be otherwise. The second uh, hindrance is kind of like in a pair with the first, the first two form a kind of pair. Just wishing for the sensory experience to be different. And uh, um, the second one is aversion. Um, it's not so much uh, wishing for a different one, but wanting to get rid of this one. So they're almost the same, really. It's like two sides of a coin. It's craving and uh, um, aversion. You could say our exact opposites. And yet, interestingly, they're really just two versions of the same thing, aren't they? They're basically like not, not accepting the current experience, resisting the current experience. But it's nice to have these two forms. To, it's nice to delineate these two ways that um, we do this, by wanting something different and by aversion towards this one. So again, it's already maybe clear talking about sound in this way, but, and then the other senses of taste and smell, usually not taste. I mean, we might start fantasizing about having a great meal. That would be kind of a craving during zazen that could happen, especially if we're hungry. And um, you know, the flavor of incense, you might not like, or somebody's perfume or something, we could have a very to a smell. I think the main other one besides sound, sound is pretty big, but I think even more than sound, especially in a longer retreat, like a session. I think the biggest sense, sensory issue that distracts us, um, that seems to obscure presence is the physical sensation. We uh, particularly, rather than um, wishing for a different one, I think it usually comes in the form of aversion to this one when it becomes painful and uncomfortable, which if we sit long enough, it will. That's a very trustworthy aspect of long sittings is it will become uncomfortable physically either very painful or somewhat uncomfortable. And, uh, and especially if it's very painful, I think probably everybody's had the experience. You're, settle, you're settling and feeling this unification of mind developing. And um, but there's a strong you know, sensation of painful sensation where the butt meets the cushion, something like that. Kind of feel that a little bit right now in the sixth day of Sashim. And um, that tingling pressure 
and uh, there can just the tingling pressure is actually not a problem for developing samadhi, but the aversion to it is Buddha teaches. Just like, that's when we start squirming. It's like, I can't stand this one any longer. Okay, okay, that's good for 15 seconds. You know, if we start squirming, there's no end. And uh, it's, you could even say, we're talking about these are hindrances to developing samadhi. They're also forms of suffering. Interestingly, the, all these five hindrances are, are dropped away upon um, awakening to reality. But, it, but the Buddha teaches almost the same list anyway for just, work, you know, intentionally letting them go to develop samadhi. It's a, upon, upon complete awakening, the Buddhas don't have to intentionally work with these anymore, it is said. But um, there are also hindrances just to developing samadhi, which is a good platform to verify reality where they won't be such an issue anymore anyway. Kind of nice, you work with them, here we're talking about working with them in a very conventional, practical way. This second um, hindrance called aversion or even ill will, like anger towards other people is where it really is most strong, but it could be aversion towards our own physical pain. The analogy the Buddha gives is like when water is boiling, it's all like bubbling on the surface boiling with resistance and aversion and we can't see clearly through to the bottom. Nice image for ill will and aversion. And the antidote here, you could say in a way, all of them are letting go of them, but they have particular qualities, ways of letting go. The craving one is really nothing more than just um, it, having the intention to really just release it and accept. Um, aversion, and especially ill will towards people, the antidote is um, loving kindness and compassion. Especially if we're actually sitting and kind of like feeling um, anger towards a person that did something to us. Probably everybody's had some experience of that occasionally in Zazen. Um, then the antidote is rather than just letting it go, that's okay too, but we could actually develop, intentionally develop a kind of kind acceptance and compassion might be like acknowledging that this person said that because of this conditions that they're in. And, um, and I really, um, I can accept their suffering too. Uh, and then or I have some sympathy for their suffering and then I have less ill will towards them. But even for like butt pain or something, we could, we could actually uh, have a kind of kindness and compassion towards ourself. And it, it, I know I have to keep sitting here, but like, um, let me do it with a kind attitude instead of just like, don't move, just keep doing it. Pain is fine. 
We're like, no, I really, I really acknowledge your pain, Kokyo. Um, uh, I sympathize with um, the sensation in the butt being so painful. And uh, I want to be like tender and compassionate and kind with this. And then it can kind of settle a little bit. And then remember, these are all for um, developing this unification of mind. So these two seem to block that. So these are the these are a pair kind of opposites, and they're the most gross. And we can really it, we got, we got to notice them to work with them. But sometimes it's like there's actually we're quite settled, and there's not so much um, wishing for a different sensory experience or aversion to this sensory experience. We're pretty settled, actually. This is why they're taught in this very nice order of development. I actually feel just pretty okay, not too, um, getting too pulled around by um, grasping and aversion. And then the next two hindrances are also kind of like a pair of opposites, a little more subtle. This third one is called sloth and torpor. Maybe one of the hardest. Uh, to work with sloth and torpor. The Buddha's analogy for this is like the lake water is like filled with algae. It's like stagnant, algae-filled, green swamp water. <laughs> Isn't that how sloth and torpor sometimes feels? You can't see through this clear water. It's so hard to work with because um, because it's hard to even notice it. It's like the mind's all kind of confused and sort of, you know, can't even remember what we're supposed to be practicing. That's, just, that's why sloth and torpor is so challenging. The others are all a little bit more, a little more sharp, clear, and vivid in order to notice them and work with them. This one's like, it's the very opposite of sharp, clear, and vividness, sloth and torpor. Uh, it's a kind of, especially in meditation, we might have plenty of sleep, we're doing fine, we feel alert and attentive, but then when we sit down and just be so still and just attend to a non-conceptual object, we get so relaxed that we get too relaxed. I'm sure we all have experience with this too, but uh, it's a good one to notice. And sometimes if it's extreme, I think we know it's really bobbing and nodding. And, and um, if we're sitting alone, maybe best to even just stop the meditation and come back later. If we're sitting in a group retreat, then we got to keep going. And, um, and there are antidotes that sometimes seem to help. Uh, classic ones that I have tried and, and often do seem to help. One is, um, is, is checking our posture. Usually when it's sloth and torpor hits, we're starting to like, the hand mudras dissolved into goo and the body is starting to dissolve into goo and, and it's kind of like 
or maybe even just a little bit. I tend to just kind of like start leaning in a little bit. Actually, a, a kind of confession and, and expression of gratitude for this, just in this first time I've done a, a full session on Zoom and um, people try putting the camera in all different places. And I just, I'll, I'll just put, have the camera in front of myself, like I'm sitting facing the Zendo. And, uh, and you know, it's up on a, on a stool like this. So my eyes are looking down. I'm not looking at the screen the whole time. But, um, but I could kind of just move my eyes up and look um, at any point while sitting. And especially if I was feeling a little bit dull, I was, it's like a posture correction device, Zoom session. I really discovered the benefits of this. In a way, I think I wouldn't, this wouldn't work in the Zendo unless you were sitting in front of a mirror, which is like a Zoom, right? So I'd look up and I just see, um, I'd be a little, I'd be a little slanted or something. And then usually at that point, I'd be a little, either a little bit getting into discursive thinking or a little bit dull. And I could just bring it back. So there's a nice little checkpoint to just like put the eyes up a little, find uprightness. It's, you could say Zoom is an Zoom zazen is an antidote for sloth and torpor. I just discovered this gratefully. And uh, but if we don't have Zoom going, um, just to actually sit up, um, sit up straight, you know, really kind of straighten up the posture, attend to the posture. The posture is a yogic element and it brings some energy where align the channels and the, and the prana flows more freely. It's really, it can be a wonderful gift. The upright sitting posture, attend to our, the details like the hand mudra. Um, is, it all, is everything aligned? That kind of brings some awakeness and alertness often. Lifting up the head, taking a deep breath, and kind of recommitting to wakefulness. Uh, another, another trick in old meditation texts that I think also works is working with the eyes. Usually in Zazen, we're looking kind of downward at an angle uh, with our eyes barely open, just a little bit of light coming in, but to open the eyes wider and actually look up a little bit from the angle, look up like straight ahead or even slightly, slightly raised. Bring some alertness. You can, it's fine to actually sit with eyes wide open too. Tibetan Dzogchen tradition, they actually emphasize this. Um, one little difference from the Zen posture is, is often it's like sitting with eyes really wide open and, and uh, you could say that helps create alertness in that tradition. It's usually taught for really um, um, working with the non-duality of appearances and awareness. We're really getting into seeing sight as the display of awareness through the eyes. But this is good for sloth and torpor um, antidote too. If we're sitting, if we're sitting where we can move around a little bit, even just shaking a little. 
like that can really wake us up from this loss and torpor for a little while. So these are some things. That's the third hindrance, like a murky, algae-filled swamp. Um, very challenging, I think. Maybe most challenging in a way, these hindrances. Oh, finally, one, one last anecdote. It's not really in the traditional lists, but, um, but that I um, use sometimes is uh, matcha. I like green tea in general, but um, sashimi has become almost like a, like a sashimi habit for me is I bring out the matcha stash, the powdered green tea is, is um, it's not like coffee. I mean, I don't drink coffee, but uh, when I have it's something is very clear, but not, not um, jittery. Say, I don't know. This is like doing drugs for Zazen, kind of, I guess. But but um, in the ancient Zen tradition, it is it is mentioned. That, I say it's not in the classic text, but in Japan, um, Asai Zenji, Dogen's first teacher's teacher, kind of the founder of Rinzai Zen in Japan, has a whole treatise on um, drinking tea. You know, green tea, and, and, and he's attributed with bringing tea from China to Japan, Isai is, and so it's kind of like, especially in monasteries where you're getting like four hours of sleep or something, um, it's interesting. Is that bringing in something from outside? Kind of, if we understand outside like that, but is actually the intention to, um, sit up straighter? Is that also bringing in something that's not already there? Kind of. In the conventional world of antidotes, um, it, it's kind of dualist, a little bit dualistic, but it's helpful when developing a um, unified mind of samadhi. The fourth hindrance is called restlessness and torpor. Deborah's got a um, chat message here about tea and, and uh, reminds me that Deborah gave me some tea in Santa Cruz on several occasions. Good tea, it's just for my zazen. She's a tea aficionado. And um, restlessness and and restlessness and worry is the fourth. Again, you can see how this is kind of the opposite of sloth and sloth and torpor is everything's got very relaxed and so too settled and relaxed. Restlessness and worry is too agitated. It's the opposite extreme. And this pair is both a little more subtle than just grasping it and aversion, right? These are more energetic hindrances. But restlessness and worry is, is a more mental um, turmoil. We're, we're mentally restless, I think is what it means, but also it could be physically restless. Um, like, like, I just want to move. It's like squirmy and I just, can we go for a run or something? And during Zazen, 
And it's like, um, but maybe that's often fueled by mental restlessness, but it could be also the prana or the chi is um, not completely balanced and flowing freely and it's agitating the body. Restlessness and worry, nice one to kind of combine as the fourth hindrance. Uh, what's the um, analogy is, um, oh yeah, the water, the calm water we're trying to see through, this um, restlessness and worry is like wind on the water creating all these waves. Buddha, was, Buddha is really good in analogies. Stirring up the water with restlessness and worry. Um, worry is generally future-oriented. Past, like, I'm worried that, um, that I didn't lock the door when I left the house this morning for the zendo. But I think really it's, you could say it's a past thing we're worrying about, but really we're worrying about the future of some thief going in there. I think it's pretty future oriented. We're usually not so worried about the present when we're really, but we might be like, if I don't move my leg, which I can't because I'm sitting, it's going to fall off. And I'm actually getting kind of worried that I'm gonna ruin my leg if I don't move. So that could be a present worry. But, um, so some things we can take care of during Kinhin, um, but during Zazen, um, restlessness and worry uh it's usually just it's usually we don't need to be restless and worrying during housing if there really is something we should go take care of it but usually usually when we get up from zazen then the restless and worry goes away it's kind of just a habitual distraction from developing the unification of mind or samadhi it, you could even i think just random thinking just um you know, ruminating thinking. I think if you had to fit into one of these four, five hindrances, I think it would be usually this one, restlessness and worry. It's just random thinking. And uh, the antidote is uh, also, I think checking the posture is a good one. Um, just like become more embodied. We're getting too into abstract thinking, come back into the body. As far as the eyes, remember for sloth and torpor, kind of raising the gaze upward a little bit. Traditionally, it's said to um, the opposite for this opposite hindrance to lower the gaze. We generally do have the gaze kind of lower, which is good for um, not getting too involved in restlessness and worry, but we can you know, lower, lower it a little bit. It's kind of like bringing the energy down and um, focusing more in the lower belly. So just like you, it might, you might intuit for sloth and torpor, it's kind of raising energy literally upwards with our gaze and our attention. Some of the texts even say like, put your attention like on your forehead. And for this restless and worry, it's bringing the energy down and our down to the lower belly, grounding, um, downward moving energy. And I think this has 
this intention of upwards and downwards, I think really does affect like, the movement of chi or prana in the channels and it affects the mind, therefore. Grounding, settling, embodying, good for um, restlessness and worry. And then finally, the um, fifth hindrance or obscuration that seems to hide or obscure unified mind of samadhi is called doubt. Maybe most subtle. First two are kind of like a pair, second two are kind of like a pair, and this fifth is stands alone. Doubt in Buddhist analogies, this is like muddy water silt in the water that's getting kind of confused and doubt is an interesting one why is that on the list um, you could say it's kind of like thinking kind of close to restlessness and worry but it's a particular type of mental activity that's um doubting for example um doubting the value of the practice probably everyone who's done the sashin after a few days, maybe have some periods like, this is kind of crazy. Is this really the best thing to be doing now? Especially if we're combining it with sloth and torpor. I'm just kind of gliding through the days in a kind of hazy state. And like, I could be accomplishing something. What a waste of time. That would be like, that's a doubt that hinders, obviously, the unified, bright uh, field of samadhi also doubt about our own ability um, like uh, it all sounds good and i know this is what the buddhas teach but um i don't think i'm cut out for this kind of practice it's too hard self-doubt i'm doubting i can do it another doubt might be um in the actual teachings i've got these instructions but uh, they may be faulty even if they're in the sutras, they may be faulty, or my interpretation or my teacher's interpretation of the sutras may be faulty. And um, therefore, um, um, I'm not so wholehearted about this presence of samadhi because I'm, I have a lot of doubts whether um, I'm even on the right track. That's a little different than I'm on the right track, but I can't do it. All these types of doubts. Um, Doubts about the teachings, how the whole system fits together. This is we spend a lot of time laying out the map, so a conceptual map, um, which I think can be very helpful. If the, if the conceptual map makes sense, it actually helps us to um, relieve the doubt. It all makes sense to me, actually. It's not just some weird thing that nobody can explain why. We might like, not sustaining it, we might give it up. But if it all makes sense, even just conceptually, then we might want to enter, we have more faith and trust to enter into the actual practice to verify it in a non-conceptual way. So I'm a big proponent of conceptual maps, partly to um, relieve this obscuration called doubt. And that's actually what the Buddha taught you is what is the, what is the antidote for doubt? It's usually clarifying Dharma teachings. Doubt as a hindrance to developing samadhi 
saving. We're not just clarifying the teachings um, to realize the teachings or to have a nice map, but even for this very particular, almost preliminary or basis for realization, developing a stable, calm, present awareness called samadhi. Uh, even for that, we need to work with doubts by clar clarifying kind of, it's kind of like the antidote is, is actual conceptual. I would say more than all the other four, I would say not fourth, fifth of doubt, conceptual, which maybe means between Zazen periods. So the next Zazen period, there won't be so much doubt, but it might even just be during Zazen, if I'm really churning around in doubt, run through some whatever's whatever the doubt is about run through or clarifying the teaching and say okay actually it does make sense this is worthwhile and then then the muddiness of doubt water can clear and and when all so these five hindrances we can notice them all catch them and release them various ways and, uh, and then maybe sometimes then the water is, is really clear and we can see through to the bottom and uh, and then start you know investigating the bottom of this lake that is usually really hard to see all the way down there meanwhile whether the hindrances is are operating or not, we also can trust that we are always beginning and endlessly within the king of samadhis, samadhi, boundless presence, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. And then we can, through the development of um, Unification of this particular mind within that through releasing these we can potentially verify the reality of the king of samadhis, samadhi. Do we have time for uh, a few questions? It's fine with me. Know that Yukoji lunch gone sounds sometime soon, but let's see. Uh, do you have any any questions or things to bring up about this? Yes, Ken. Yes, um, these five hindrances. Um, the, the doubt one, I find that if I catch myself in that doubt, um, as you say, it can be somewhat conceptual, can be helpful. And I try to look to see who, who or what is doubting. And, the, and if I can get into that space, then I can see that it's just this image 
of a separate self. And I find that can be very helpful. Very nice point, yes. So I mentioned um, the traditional antidote for doubt is kind of conceptually clarifying the teachings, which could be pretty minimal. We don't have to run through the entire map of Buddha Dharma in order to, uh, to release the doubt. But, but what you just mentioned, I would say is a more of a non-conceptual and more direct approach to doubt. And I think you could apply that to all five hindrances in an equal way, which is, um, you said, who, who is experiencing this doubt? Whose doubt is it? Um, that's like turning the light around, going right back to the source. And we see that it's not, um, it's not, uh, there's not anybody who it's actually happening to. It's just a conditioned pattern uh, that's arising now. And that actually loosens it up a lot. Usually it's like my, especially if it's the self-doubt of like, I can't do this, or I don't understand this, then it's all wrapped up and it's happening to me. But if it's more like doubt is arising as a pattern, conditioned pattern, that may be enough to release it. And I say, we can apply this to all five because it's like, whose craving is this? Whose aversion is this? Whose sloth and torpor is it? Whose restlessness and worry is it? Whose doubt is it? And asking this sincerely and um, following the question back to the source, we don't find anybody there who's having these experiences. They're just conditioned arisings. So thank you so much for that point. And, um, and I actually have worked with it this way because uh, different personalities maybe um, gravitate towards different hindrances in this list of five. Everybody has to work with all five, really, in the end. But some, for some people, some are more dominant than others. Or even at different times in their life, some are more diff dominant than others. But I have always been a kind of... Um, a doubting person actually and uh in my life like whoa but there's uh Tokyo like has studied all these teachings so much but I think part of the reason why I spend so much time studying all these teachings is because I have this proclivity towards doubt like if this doesn't make sense to me I won't do it <laughs> so like I have to clarify I have to clarify these teachings in order to just sit zazen it's kind of a hindrance. It's kind of a, it's kind of a sickness, but the results not not so bad. And I mean, it encourages me to study the Dharma and clarify. And the doubts get more and more subtle, and then to study more. Um, but so that's the one antidote. But um, sometimes I've talked to teachers about this doubt, and they say, really, the direct approach is exactly what you said, Ken. Just, um, it's just a, it's a proclivity, it's a tendency. You can keep clarifying teachings, but you're still gonna have some doubt if you have this deep habit. So just look directly into it. Either whose doubt is it, or um, another version almost the same is, what is the true nature of this doubt? It's, a, it's an experience, it's a, it's a mental experience. What is it, this doubt? And then we see, we look really deeply, we see, it's just um, the display 
of boundless presence taking the form of doubt. It's like everything that appears as the expression of boundless awareness is nothing but boundless awareness. But why does it manifest in this particular way? Due to causes and conditions. Everyone has different habit patterns due to their own conditioning. So it doesn't matter what they are. It matters the essence of this doubt is nothing more than the knowing of it. This is subtle. It's a subtle antidote. It's not even exactly an antidote. It's more like it's more like going, going straight to the actual realization of non-duality of experience and awareness. I don't have a question, Kokio, but I didn't get a chance this morning to thank you for the session and your brilliant teachings. Uh, it has changed the way I practice sitting, and I just feel like um, what you taught us, it feels like Manjushri is right there all the time with that uh, view, uh, going to clarity, going to clarity, going to clarity. And I'm just so grateful. Thank you for your kind words, Karina. Thank you for being there in Sashin. And, uh, and happy birthday. To you. Same to you. <laughs> you and everybody. Uh, May this, this um, birth we take uh, again and again continue to be for the benefit of all beings and any merit that we gather along the way. May we um, enjoy it as well as freely offering it to all beings throughout space and time to, so that all may realize the great awakened way. May our intention equally extend to every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to verify it. Thank you, Kokyo, for these wonderful teachings. Uh, I, the, the Dharma is boundless and it is freely offered. Now, thank you so much for your offering. And what I would like to ask is those who have been part of Sashin and would like to contribute to sustaining the Dharma to also offer freely what they can in, in this support of your practice, Kokyo, and for Jakoji as well. 
So thank you everyone for, we really had a wonderful session. Thank you for leading at Kokyo Sensei and uh, look forward to the next time we get to do it here. Maybe in person, but probably on Zoom again. <clears throat> so uh, I think that's all we have for right now. Uh, are you willing to stay behind a little bit, Kokyo, in case people want to uh, converse a little longer? Sure. Okay. People would like. Well, guys, um, thank you everybody for joining us today. And uh, we'll come together again soon. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jukoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jukoji, please visit us on the web at jukoji.org.